0: hey folks and welcome back to the theopolis podcast i'm your host brian moats and i'm the content manager at theopolis institute theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church participants in our programs will learn to read the bible imaginatively worship god faithfully and engage the culture intelligently in this episode jim jordan's going to be continuing his series on the life of jacob and here he'll be in genesis chapter 34. specifically he's continuing to look at the story of the murder of the men of salem by jacob's sons We want to thank you so much for listening, we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 34 and the life of Jacob.
1: Well, we're in Genesis 34, and we are beginning to look at this story of the murder of the men of Salem, the city of Shechem, by the sons of Jacob. We've come back from our exodus, we've encountered Esau, we've come to Succoth, and now we move on to this city of Salem, which we saw is at least conceptually, if not fully linked, to Jerusalem, and this is where this event takes place. There's one background aspect of this that doesn't come clear, Until the following chapter, at least in our Bible, after this event, God appears to Jacob and Jacob tells his household and all who are with him, "...put away the teraphim or foreign gods that are in your midst, purify yourselves and change your garments." So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that were in their hand along with the sacred rings that were in their ears. That tells us that these gods that Rachel brought back with her, and which we said she humiliated by sitting on them, have had a life of their own. Some of the people in the camp have been worshiping them or using them as talismans or however these kinds of minor objects were used. And I think that's background to the story that we are considering. Simeon and Levi's sin, their failure to understand and appreciate the covenant, their violence is all connected with the fact that idolatry is still being practiced in the camp of Jacob. And this is similar to what happens after we get out of Egypt. We get out of Egypt, we go to Sukkoth, we encounter the descendants of Esau and the Amalekites, We get to Mount Sinai, and God makes this covenant, and everything's at peace, and then we make this golden calf out of the junk that we brought from Egypt. And then the judgment has to come. Well, something similar has happened here. They brought this stuff with them, and it's okay to spoil the Egyptians if you just bring out those pieces of gods and melt them down and make something out of them. But if you bring them out as gods and you spoil the wrong stuff, then it has an effect. And idolatry has the effect of cruelty. There is no question that every idolatrous civilization is extremely cruel. And the only civilizations in the world that haven't been cruel are the ones that have broken with idolatry and become Christian. So that's part of what's here. And this is the climax of the story is suddenly we find these other gods are here. And what actually has happened is if these are Laban's gods, and they are, then these are Laban's grandsons. And there's an extension of Laban's pagan and inhumane practices down into this situation. These are the grandsons of Laban more than they are the sons of Jacob, and that's what lies behind their behavior on this occasion. So let's begin the story again in chapter 34, verse 1. The narrative actually begins three verses higher. Jacob comes to Salem, and he builds an altar there, and at the end of the story, as I just mentioned, the story ends by going to Bethel, erecting an altar, and getting rid of the false gods that are still hanging around. Well, chapter thirty-four, verse one says, "Now read from Fox." Now Dinah, Leah's daughter, whom she'd born to Yaakov, went out to see the women of the land. And Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her and took her and lay with her illicitly. But his heart clung to Dinah, Yaakov's daughter. He loved the girl. He spoke to the heart of the girl. And Shechem said to Hamor, his father, Take me, this girl as a wife. Now, we looked at all this last time. The way this is written, it's not rape. It's more he did something he shouldn't have done. We find that she's living with him. He loves her. This is exactly the opposite kind of story that we have later on with the rape of Tamar by Amnon, David's son, who had his way with her by force and then despised her and threw her out of the room. This is just the opposite. The Hebrew here does not imply violent activity, but it implies that he did something he shouldn't have done. It was wrong. You could translate it that he humbled her, or that he seduced her even. We don't know the details, but there is no implication here of an assault type of rape situation, even though this is always called the rape of Dinah. It just didn't air in Hebrew. It's a little bit less shocking and scandalous than that. Now, the thing I didn't point out last time, but which occurred to me later on, this is the fourth story in the Bible of brother-sister situation where the sister is exposed to sexual predators. In the first one is chapter 12, where Abram and Sarai go down to Egypt. And Abram says to Pharaoh, she's my sister, which as we saw, means you talk to me about my sister if you're interested in her. Then later on in chapter 20, Abraham and Sarah go to the country of the Philistines, and Abraham says, she's my sister, which means if Abimelech is interested in her, he has to negotiate with Abraham. On both occasions, these tyrants just grab the woman, and then God judges them. Then in chapter 26, Isaac goes down to Philistine territory and he says, "Rebecca is my sister. And we saw that she was, by adoption, his sister. We looked at how that works out in the text. And what that means is, if you're interested in my sister, you come and talk to me about it. And then Abimelech says, well, when he finds out that they're married, he says, well, you should have told me you were married because one of the men around here might likely have lain with your wife. In other words... There are a lot of Shechem's around here and they might have seduced your wife or even raped her. Who knows? Now we come to this story and what we don't read, the silence is what becomes important here and significant psychologically. We don't read, Dinah went out to see the women of the land and Simeon and Levi said, she is our sister. You see, the brothers are not here. I think that the rage of these brothers is accounted for by guilt. They weren't there. They didn't protect their sister, and now this has happened. And they're not going to say, well, gee, we should have made it clear to these people that she's our sister and we're watching over her, and so they're enraged. We don't know for sure if they didn't do everything they should have done, but the absence of that in the text seems to be somewhat significant. And that's often the way it is. I mean, Simeon and Levi could have said, well, we should have watched out for her better. But instead they'd say, Hamor has got to die. Well, that's what has happened. Hamor wants to marry Dinah. He's in love with her. And everything could work out real well here. What starts off on the left foot could be fixed up, and we could walk straight from now on. Verses 5 to 7, still reviewing. We're almost caught up. Jacob had heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Since his sons were with the livestock in the fields, Jacob kept silent till they came home. Amor, Shechem's father, went out to Jacob to speak with him. But Jacob's sons came back from the fields. When they heard, the men were pained. They were exceedingly upset, for he had done a disgrace in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, such as is not to be done. Well, as we saw last time, The Jacob haters want to say, well, Jacob, he didn't love Dinah because he didn't love Leah, and Dinah was Leah's daughter, which that's already been pointed out here in the text, and Jacob just doesn't care. That's why he doesn't do anything. Or they'll say Jacob is ineffectual. He's just not much of a father. Jacob never was much anyway, and it's just amazing that God ever saved such a rotten person. But what's really happening here in context is it's the brothers who are the primary guardians of the sisters, it's primarily their responsibility to negotiate for marriage. We saw that in chapter 24, where Abraham's servant negotiates with Rebekah's brother, not with Rebecca's father. And Jacob is also leading his men into the ways of wisdom by letting them make decisions. That's what you do as you grow up. You let your apprentices take over more and more, and let them learn to make decisions for themselves. All of those themes are here. There's no reason to think that Jacob is no good, or he's failing to give leadership or such a thing. Actually, I think he was pretty surprised at what happened. Jacob himself is deceived by his sons in what they do. He's certainly not in on the plot. So now we take it up in verse 8. Jacob has kept silent. Jacob's sons are exceedingly upset and pained, but now, how are they going to respond to this offer? And we'll take it up in verses 8-10. to Hamor spoke with them, saying, My son Shechem, his heart is attached to your daughter. Pray, give her to him as a wife, and make marriage alliances with us, and give us your daughters, and our daughters take for yourselves, and settle among us, and the land will be before you. Settle down, and trade in it, and obtain holdings in it. Now, if you're looking at Fox, it says settle down, travel about, and obtain holdings, but the commentators seem to feel that it would be better to translate this as trade, rather than just move around in it. It could be either one, since these people are maintaining flocks and herds, they could be moving around as well as trading, but... It's just a matter of accuracy of translation, and apparently the term is not all that clear. In fact, he's got it as a footnote here. Trade is an alternative. Yeah. Well, what's happening here? Well, again, you've got commentators who say, well, Hamor doesn't apologize, and neither does Shechem. All they say is, Shechem loves your daughter, so please give her to him as a wife and marry with us. But I don't know that we're supposed to read that much into it. In the first place, the very fact that they come and want to make it right is half of an apology. But the other half is this is not the entire conversation here. It never is. We're getting a summary of the conversation. We're being told what is important. And it's dangerous to look at the silence of the text. Now, I just did that. But I thought there's something at least somewhat pregnant about the silence here because three previous stories have shown pagans attacking the women of God's people, but in each of those stories the brother is on hand at least speaking up. And he's not here now, so I thought that silence was pregnant. I don't think this one is. Obviously there's apologies implied, if not actually stated. Other commentators are some of the same ones. The ones who kind of want to justify this murder. Now, that's what you've got, is commentators who want to justify the murder of these people for some reason. I don't know, they want to, that's what they think the text is doing. In verse 26, later on, it says they took Dinah from Shechem's house. So, Dinah is living with Shechem in Salem, and perhaps she's a prisoner, perhaps she's a hostage to the negotiations, like Juan Miguel's. Mother and his other little daughter back in Cuba that Castro's got nicely locked up to make sure that Juan Miguel says exactly and only what Castro wants him to say and doesn't defect and choose to stay here in America. So maybe that's what's going on. Easy to understand these days. But we don't know this either. Let's just take another scenario here. This girl goes out to visit the ladies of the land. Day by day, she meets this handsome young prince. He's so well dressed and he's so nice, and he's the prince of the entire city and of the entire surrounding territory of this city-state. He starts paying attention to her, and she winds up giving herself to him, which is something he shouldn't have done, so he's taken her illicitly, but now she's in love with him, and he's in love with her, and she's staying in the house, and they're just waiting for the negotiations to finish out. This is perfectly reasonable. So... The scenario that she's a prisoner and so Simeon and Levi had no choice but to deceive these people isn't implied here. I think that would have been said if that was the point of the passage. point of the passage is we've got an opportunity to convert Gentiles here and the whole thing is turned upside down. The point of this passage is the covenant and all the covenantal goodies that God has worked into the covenant over the last couple of generations are about to be destroyed, if not almost destroyed, by this action. It's happened once already. Isaac, the son of Abraham, decided he was going to take the covenant and everything God had done with Abraham, and he was going to give it to Esau and flush it down the toilet because he liked Esau better, follow his emotions. Now we've got the sons of Jacob and all the things that God has done by restoring the covenant after Isaac's sin. And restoring it with Jacob and taking it further and adding to the covenant. Now these sons, the next generation, are again threatening to destroy the whole thing by perverting the meaning of circumcision and by destroying the witness of Israel. The whole point of the covenant was to set these people up as witnesses. If that's gone, the whole covenant has gone. And so that is going to be the climax of the story. You have destroyed the witness that we have in this area with the Gentiles and You're going to have to get rid of these idols. It's not that Simeon and Levi are righteous here, or even that they're compelled to do this because they have no choice. Rather, it's that they are wicked. And they respond very wrongly to a situation. Well, there's an offer of covenantal alliance. And it's useful. Again, I pointed this out already in terms of the chronology. Make marriages with us. Give us your daughters, and our daughters take for yourselves. These sons of Jacob are already old enough to be married and have daughters of their own. If Dinah is 16, then Simeon and Levi are probably 27 or so years old. They've been married for a while. They've got little girls, and they're saying, Look, you've got daughters, and your daughters can marry our guys, and our guys can marry your daughters, and we'll all be pals. We'll just be friends. Well, now, there's an ambiguity here. Do the sons of God marry with the daughters of men? they are not supposed to, but that's about to be solved. Hey, if you'll all circumcise yourselves and come into Israel, then we can marry you. be okay for the sons of God to marry the daughters of men if you'll all be circumcised. Otherwise, we can't do it. So on the face of it, the scheme is good. There's some danger in it. Intermarry with these pagans. We'll see in just a moment that these guys, at least some of them, are thinking, hey, if we intermarry with Jacob and his clan, we'll just wind up getting all their property. So they're thinking crafty, too. We'll have to comment on that when we get to it. What does that mean, and how should we understand it? Now, some of the commentators, again, say that the Bible later on forbids marrying with the Canaanites. just straightforward, a law. You come out of Egypt, you will not marry with these women. You will not marry them no matter what, but you're supposed to wipe them out. Well, that's true, but that's 400 years from now, or 300. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Abraham made alliances with these people. Mamre and Eshcol, they're called Canaanites. In chapter 14, verse 13, Canaanites are not ultimate wicked at this point. Sodom and Gomorrah, and Zeboim were, and God wiped them out. They are sort of the first fruit to the judgment of Canaan. But the rest of them aren't. So you can't backdate these commands. Later on you're commanded, don't intermarry with them, don't have anything to do with them, and in fact, kill them all. Well, you can't backdate that to this. They're not being told to kill them all, and they're not being told not to marry them. So I think that involves not reading the text in its temporal and historical order. This would be a risky situation, of course. If you do live there and intermarry with them, that's a risky situation. We've already had some risky situations, and God has shown us ways out of them, like living with Laban and earning the flocks. So, in and of itself, this is just a problem. This is a wisdom problem that comes before these guys. It's wisdom. You don't have any obedience questions here. It would be real simple. If God had said, don't marry them, then it would be obedience. Sorry we can't do it. Even though you had your way with the girl, father has a right to cancel the deal, and I'm canceling the deal, and we're not going to go through with it. That'd be one way to do it. But it's not an obedient situation, it's a wisdom situation. You've got a messy situation, how do you deal with it wisely? Jacob has been having to do this kind of thing for years, and now, will his sons inherit his wisdom, or will they be fools? They're going to be fools if we'll have to wait for Joseph to find one who's going to show any wisdom. Well, that's what Hamor says. He's the father. He's the king. Now the crown prince says as well, so that we know that this isn't just formal. He gives a very emotional speech in verses 11 and 12. Shechem said to her father and to her brothers, May I only find favor in your eyes. However much you say to me, I will give in payment to whatever extreme you multiply the bride price and the marriage gift. I will give however much you say to me. Only give me the girl as a wife. Now that's very clear. He begs for favor. He says, I will pay as much as you ask. You can bankrupt me if you want. Both as the endowment money given to Dinah and as a gift of the family. Man, I'll give you anything you want. Now, you couldn't ask for any more than this. What else do you want? Well, if you want revenge, nothing's good enough. And that's the sin. Vengeance is mine, says God. When Hamlet takes vengeance, everybody dies. Vengeance is dangerous. So, this is all very reasonable. But now, we get the demand of Simeon and Levi in the text tells us precisely what's going on here. Jacob's sons answered Shechem and Hamor his father with deceit. And I want to call attention to that. It is an important theme throughout here. There's deceptions going on all the time. Jacob has been deceived. Jacob has been involved in deceptions. People are deceiving each other constantly. And that's part of the wisdom aspect of this story. In other words, when you are dealing with wicked people, and they have all the cards, about all you can do is try to deceive them. It's the old story. When they come to your house and say, do you have any Jews here? You say, Jews? What Jews? I don't even know what Jews are. No, we're not hiding any Jews in the cellar or in the attic. Never heard of no Jews. What's a Jew? No, you deceive them. Of course, that wouldn't work if you said that, but... You lie to them. Anything wrong with lying to a tyrant if he's out to get you? It is wrong to lie in situations where you have no reason to or lie in order to do something wrong. So if you have to lie in order to preserve life against the wicked, that's not the same thing as lying in a wicked way in order to attack somebody. That's the theme throughout here. And here it is again. They are lying with no good reason except to commit mayhem. Jacob's sons answered Shechem and Hamor his father with deceit. And they said it this way, because he had defiled thine of their sister. And they said to him, we cannot do this thing, give our sister to a man who has a foreskin, and that would be a reproach for us. Well, later on, in Joshua, it says when the whole nation circumcised itself after they came into the promised land at the hill of foreskins, it says that the reproach was removed. So there's a theology here that I'm not going to explore, but that is implied here. Circumcision removes reproach somehow or other. Only on this condition will we comply with you if you become like us by having every male among you circumcised. Then we will give you our daughters, and your daughters we will take for ourselves, and we will settle among you, so that we become a single people. But if you do not hearken to us to be circumcised, we will take our daughter and go. And these words seemed good in the eyes of Hamor, in the eyes of Shechem, the son of Hamor. And the young man did not hesitate to do the thing, for he desired Jacob's daughter. Now, let's consider a couple of things here that I've got raised in the nose. One is, where's Reuben? Reuben is actually the oldest brother of Dinah, and we're not told. I think later passages in the text may fill out a bit about Reuben's character and shed some light. Reuben shows, in spite of the fact that he commits this sin later on with Bilhah, and he hasn't done it yet, so he hasn't become disqualified. That's not why he's not here. His sin that disqualifies him from leadership happens later on. But he does show that he's more judicious. I think this is kind of a firstborn characteristic anyway. Firstborn children tend to be slower in making decisions because they feel the brunt of being on the edge and having to make the decision more than younger children do. Younger children grow up with the psychological covering of older siblings, and they find action to be a little bit easier. I mean, my brother grew up faster than I did for that reason, in the sense that He graduated from college before I did. He just went through high school in three years and zipped through college in three years and graduated. And I was taking my time and wasn't sure what I wanted to do. He always knew what he wanted to do. It's the way things go sometimes. Younger brothers find life a little bit easier. They're more relaxed. Reuben, the firstborn, maybe he's hanging back. Later on, when the brothers decide to kill Joseph, it's Reuben who tries to save him. Judah winds up coming up with the plan to sell him instead of killing him. But Reuben has gone back to gather some men to try to rescue him. So I don't think Reuben would have gotten involved in this. And so why he's not here, where he's off the scene. It's not his characteristic to make a decision this rash. The second thing we find here, I've got noted down here, is that Simeon and Levi don't show any understanding of the meaning of circumcision. Well, they do a little bit, this reference to reproach. The circumcision made them a nation of priests and witnesses. And, of course, what they intend to do is use it in exactly the opposite way. There's no way on earth you can understand the meaning of circumcision and then do this with people who want to convert. They want to convert. The third thing I've got down here is that Shechem is willing to do this. This is a tall order here. Be circumcised. And I'll comment on it more in just a minute. But the other thing I have down here, and once again, the Bible is giving us a very realistic theology here. This is a wound in the penis, which is exactly the organ that was used in the seduction of Dinah. So we've got eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The wound that is required of Shechem corresponds to the wound that he delivered to Dinah in deflowering her. So there's a perfect match in terms of justice here. And once again, if justice is satisfied eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, circumcision for deflowering, that ought to be enough. And if it's not enough, then something's very badly wrong. So the offer is perfectly just. It's just in terms of God's standards of law. And it should have been enough course it was it would have been enough and this all could have happened and they could have lived together and then we would have had a story that worked out how the men of Salem thought they might get some of Jacob's flocks and Jacob worked it out and God did this and Jacob did that and the sons did this and we would have a different story about how all that worked its way out down through a generation or so that isn't the way the story's going to go because all these people are going to be killed Well, now it gets even more interesting here in chapter 34, 19-23. This is the second half of verse 19. Now, Shechem carried more weight than anyone in his father's house. Well, I guess so if he's a crown prince. But when Hamor and Shechem, his son, came back to the gate of their city, they spoke to the men of the city. I'll just stop there for a second. The leadership is in the gate of the city because that's where you control who comes in and goes out. And so, as you control who comes in and goes out, you can keep the foreigners out. You also can tax. If you're going to tax trade, you've got a tariff on trade, if you're going to strong-arm anybody coming to the city, try to sell wares, on the way to the bazaar, everybody has to pass through the gate, and you can exact uh, tax from them if you want. It's sort of the guarding point, and so it becomes a place where justice also takes place. That's why when there's a crime, or something, it says take it to the elders of the gate because they control who's in and out of the city. Excommunication from the city, expulsion from the city, or capital punishment are very similar. So this is where all the leading men congregate. This is where you hang out if you're an elder, and that's who they're talking to here. The elders and the braves, all the young guys who are planning to be elders someday, they're going to hang around there too. But these men are peaceably disposed toward us, verse 21. Let them settle in the land and trade in it. The land is certainly big enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives for ourselves and let us give them our daughters. But only on this condition will the men comply with us to settle among us to become a single people. That every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Now I think if I was those men of Shechem I'd say,
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa.
1: You know, your boy wants to marry this girl, okay, but not the rest of us, okay? No, sir. Then he goes on, you see, you've got to sweeten this deal. Their acquired livestock, their acquired property and all their beasts, will they not become ours? Let us only comply with them that they may settle among us. And then we read, they hearken to Hamor and Shechem his son, all who go out to war from the gate of the city. And all the males were circumcised, all who go out from the gate of his city. Now that's what is really the amazing thing in this story, that these guys would go along with this. I think if I was uncircumcised, you'd have to do a lot of persuading to get me to go through something that painful and traumatic. Having the notes here that the Hamor and Shechem, they make a crass appeal to the men of the city, and some commentators take this as revealing their hearts, but it's very clear that the heart of this matter is not that they want to get Jacob's flocks. If they wanted to do that, they could take an army out and get them any time they wanted. That's not how things are done, and of course that would be a problem if they did that. They would stink in the nostrils of all the other cities, so they wouldn't do that anyway. But it's very clear in the passage that the heart of the matter is Shechem wants to marry Dinah. as a desire to join with the covenant people in some sense. So this is really a tactic. And of course, you can always do well by doing good. We can do this, and hey, also it'll have an additional benefit. Columbus sailed the ocean blue with a view to, what did Columbus want? He wanted to find spices. And why did he want spices? To get money. And why did he want money? To finance a crusade to free the Holy Land and to take the gospel to the infidels. That's what he wanted. So the whole purpose of Columbus traveling over here was to get money to advance the gospel. But if you also get rich in the process, hey, that's okay too. That's the way you think. Why not? No reason not to have money as well as to do good. Well, similar thing here. We're going to do good. We're going to get this girl for Shechem. These are nice people. We've gotten to know them a little bit. And plus, hey, their property will merge with ours and we'll have access to it. And who knows, maybe we'll get it all. But the other thing to know, and the thing that we have to know, and by this time in the text we do know, is that God has already overcome Esau, and he has protected Jacob's flocks. Remember that God in this passage is Mighty One. Chapter 33, verse 20, he is El, the Mighty One. And in chapter 35, verse 1, at the end of the story, Beth El, house of the Mighty One. The mighty one who was seen by you when you fled from Esau. So mighty one is the name of God throughout this passage, El. And the mighty one has already overcome Esau. He protected Jacob's flocks when Laban was trying to steal them over and over again. And so we know, and these sons should know, that that isn't going to happen. Of course, they're not here for this conversation. But if they heard about it and were worried about it, there's no need to worry. Because if God wants you to have flocks, you'll have them. The Simeon and Levi don't trust God with anything. They don't trust that anything good is going to work out. So the men of Salem respond. The fact that they're willing to go along with this plan is surprising, to say the least. And I think that that indicates, at least as a subtext possibly, that they'd already been impressed by the peaceful behavior and witness of Jacob. That's already been mentioned that Jacob has been in this area and uh, has had a witness among them and so they become familiar with circumcision. This is a very painful and traumatic thing to be willing to do just to satisfy your crown prince and just to think you might get some extra money out of it. And I think that there's an indication that there might have been might have been a very positive outcome of these events if the